since the beginning, Christianity has always been a conversion, a converting religion. So that means, uh, regardless of the people that you know who come from different beliefs and religions and backgrounds, uh, Christians have really spread around the world because from one generation to another, they're trying to convert people and trying to convince them to become Christians and uh, to leave their former way of life and beliefs and become a Christian. And so really, that's because at the core of the Bible and is the gospel, which says that there's one God and that God is holy and that everybody in the world he's made and they've sinned against him in one way or the other. And that in the end, we'll go and die and be before him and he'll either send people to hell or to heaven. So on one hand, you can imagine for the Christian to say, I really want to convert people because I know what's at stake. But on the other hand, people who don't side with Christianity are opposed to it and persecuted it. So which is where we pick up today's passage. And since you don't have to listen to my voice all the time, Joanna's going to read it. <laughs> my beautiful wife. We're reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a, vi- in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Today we're going to be looking at conversion. What is it? How do you get it? Why do you need it? And after you've got it, what do you do with it? So what is it? Conversion, you can explain in a couple different ways. The same way water can change into ice or steam, it's converted. A person can have a deep experience that changes them for the rest of their life. They become a different person. Really at the core of their being, they're converted. 
So, how do you be converted? There are two things that need to happen. The first has to do with God, and the second has to do with an empty grave. So God is who he is, and he's not you. Um, to, to see this, look at Saul's life. He's, up until this point, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he's a religious fanatic. He's trying to persecute the church and not just say, I don't want to be around Christians. He's actually a terrorist. He's gone to Damascus, which is another country, to try and extradite Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. That's why he got his letter from the religious leaders, so that they could be tried, put to jail, or maybe even murder, like with Stephen. So what would possess someone to be like that? And I think it's because Saul, before he became a Christian, was a legalist, which means that he was trying to obey God by the legal standard, the law. In other words, his view of God was that God is sitting up in heaven and that he throws down a moral ladder. And he says to people, come on, climb up. I'll give you the Ten Commandments. And if you perform enough and if you do enough, then I'll bless you, I'll love you, and you can come to heaven. And so Saul had built his whole life around that. In Philippians 3, he tells people what he was like before he was converted. And he goes on and says, I was a Jew among Jews. I was head and shoulders above my peers. As for legalistic strivings, which mean I was trying to impress God with my works, I was flawless. So what was it was his view of God was wrong. He couldn't see that God is a God of grace and that you can trust him even if you've sinned. Uh, Let me put it another way. When Jesus said that to the Pharisees, I'm telling you the truth, prostitutes and tax collectors are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. And Saul was a Pharisee. He would have heard that. What's being said here in modern equivalent is people look down their nose uh, in society for a tax collector for today would be like a white-collar crook, basically someone who rips off people and everyone in society says, I can't believe God would ever let that person to heaven. Look what they've done with these corporations. Or like a prostitute, someone who society says, oh, I can't, I can't have anything to do with those people. Maybe someone in society would look down on someone who doesn't work and uh, uses social assistance and they say, I'm a good person. I volunteer. I go to church. I read the Bible. I do all these things. And you're going to tell me that those people, because they became a Christian, are going to go into heaven before me? That's crazy. That's, a, that's absolutely off Saul's grid because of his view of God. The other way people have a flawed view of God is the complete opposite extreme. So uh, Lady Gaga right now has a song out. It's big. It's called Born This Way. And uh, I've got a quote from her in an interview. And it says, be yourself and love who you are because, and be proud because you were born this way. And in the song, she's basically trying to preach another sermon that says, anything you feel when it comes to sexuality is okay. God made you that way, and so go with it. But if you think about that, we all have to repress our sexuality on some level. Otherwise, it's called sexual harassment, right? So it's not a question of do we repress our sexuality, but when. And she was in the song referring back to God made me this way. God gave me these feelings. Let's say God gave me a feeling to steal from Lady Gaga. Is that okay? Did God really make me that way? Does she want me to be that way? So this comes back to another view of God. And really what it boils down to is if you talk to someone, if you live in Fredericton long enough and you talk to unbelievers, people who don't believe in the God of the Bible, they'll say things like, God accepts everyone for the way they are. Um, It doesn't really matter how you live and how you behave. Um, He's more concerned about third world debt um, and social justice. And so a liberal, progressive person's God sounds a lot like a liberal, progressive person. But if you talk to the other people who are in Saul's boat, 
You talk to conservative, uptight, more closed-minded people, all of a sudden their God sounds like a closed-minded, conservative-type person. So we're stuck, aren't we? Everyone has their view of God. Everyone has their opinion. I think he's this way. I think he's that way. But are we really stuck? God would have to break in and do something that would say to everybody, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. Enter Jesus. So the first thing you need to be converted is to know what God is like. And uh, just to close on that, if you think about it, if you really want to be converted, you have to have a God that's different than you. If God, if you just made him up and said, God's like this, there's no difference between you. He can't change you. He has to be different. If you had a relationship with somebody and they always agreed with you, never challenged you on anything, never said anything you didn't want to hear, you'd have a yes man. you just have a plastic relationship for some reason. And people, when they make God in their own image, just have a yes God, someone that will always agree with them and never challenge them on anything. But that can never change you. So the resurrection. This is the way we know that the Bible is true, that the God of the Bible is the God who really is there. Um, because it's not just a he said, she said opinion type thing. It's a historical fact. Jesus is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, I've talked about this with many different people, but I always try and come back to this, that the pressure's on you, if you don't believe in the resurrection, to come up with an alternate explanation of what changed Saul. Saul went from being the man that he was, who was persecuting the church, into someone who later on in Philippians he says, I know what it's like to live with peace in my life all the time. I know what it's like to have joy. Even if I have little possessions or a lot of possessions, I'm always the same. What changed him was that he became a believer in the resurrection. But why did it really happen? Was Jesus physically appearing to him? And alternate explanations will say, well, we don't really believe the resurrection happened, so maybe he was hallucinating. He was on the road and the heat got to him, and then he just lost his mind, and for the rest of his life he was convinced that that was real. But there's holes in that. Because if you look at it, who else was with him? Other people. Other people saw, saw they heard the voice, and they began to uh, bring him to Damascus. So if he was hallucinating, that doesn't happen in groups. Multiple people can hallucinate. Don't get me wrong. If you're uh, involved in right substances. But nobody has the same hallucinate. Everybody in the group had the same thing. And think about it. Ananias is in a different part of town. And he has a hallucination. He has a vision that the Lord Jesus has appeared to him and said, Go down the street named Straight, which is still in Damascus, by the way. And you'll find this guy here. So how could that possibly be? And besides, Saul was actually physically blinded for three days. He doesn't do that to you. So after a while of looking at the resurrection, you have to come up with an alternate. What changed Saul and what made the early church start? Because it's not a hoax. People will say, well, the church fathers, they wanted to get rich. They wanted to be popular. So they started a new religion and they're conveniently at the head of it. But that doesn't make sense because if you look at the way they died, they didn't get more rich, they got less rich. They didn't get more popular, people hated them. Some of the ways that the early Christians died were they would have horses, tie uh, a string onto the horse and then one onto your arm, then one onto your leg and just let the horses go. They'd rip you apart. Others were crucified just like the Lord Jesus. Other Christians were put on a stake, okay? They're impaled on a stake and then pitch was put on them and they were lit on fire like torches because people thought that'd be fun. And the last one, this is horrible. They would put a hole in their skull and let liquid lead fall into it. So that's the way they died. And the only way they could save themselves is if they said, I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Up until now, I've been telling a lie. You've caught me. I'll give it up. But they died claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus appeared to them. 
At one point, Paul says that he appeared to over 500 people, and they all died like that, knowing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go before God, but I know he's the real God because Jesus rose from the dead. And I've seen it. So, uh, some other questions p- people come up with. Uh, what about dinosaurs? What about the Bible? What about other religions? And why does God allow suffering? Those are all valid questions. And I'm telling you, there are honest answers for honest questions because I found them. But that's not the main issue. It really isn't. It wasn't for Saul. Saul would have had his own set of questions. Remember, he grew up a Jew. So his whole education would have been built around the Torah, which said on every page, there's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. But then here we have in Christianity, Jesus is praying to the Father, and the Father's answering his questions, and yet he says that he's God. And in Matthew 28, the disciples worship him. So the Christians come up with that there's one God, but there's three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Saul doesn't have Jesus appear to him on the road and say, Saul, Saul, let me explain the Trinity to you. It's kind of like ice and water and steam. No. Jesus is alive, and that was enough for Saul. Saul would have to get his other questions answered at a later time. And he sits alone for three days, and he has the decency to pray and to fast and to come to God and say, I really want to get to the bottom of this. I want a whole change in my life. And so to be converted, you need those two things to happen to you. God is different than you. Otherwise, you couldn't change. He's not the way that you think he is. He's probably more gracious than you think he is, or he's probably more ethical than you think he is, and he's going to judge you. And the other thing is that the way you can know that is because Jesus is alive today. This was supposed to come up earlier. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Now, why do you need to be converted? There's a great quote uh, from Tim Keller, who's a man in New York, and he says, "You are way." The gospel tells you that you are way worse than you think you are, and you're way more loved than you ever dared believe. Okay, you're way worse than you think you are, and simultaneously, you're way more loved by God than you ever dared imagine. Okay, this is the whole bombshell of the passage. When, when. Uh, Jesus appears to Saul, he says, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, I, I would think, when he says, I, who are you, Lord? It's not Lord Jesus. It's, the Greek word just means sir, so he's paying respect. At this point, he doesn't know who it is. So I would think in his mind, he's kind of like, I wasn't planning on persecuting anyone so bright. <laughs> who are you? I mean, who are you? And Jesus says, when you were persecuting them, you were persecuting me. And this is the idea that's going to change the rest of Saul's life. That when someone becomes a Christian, they are one with Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is here and the church is here, but in his eyes, we're one. So when we hurt, he hurts. When Saul persecuted the church, Jesus felt it. That's why he says, you're persecuting me. And the whole, of the rest of his adult life, this idea is going to have a big shelf life for him. The rest of his letters, he's going to keep going back to this and saying, you're in Christ if you're a Christian. When Jesus described a Christian, he's called them a disciple or a member of the kingdom of God. Um, when Peter would do it in his letters, he called them a saint or the elect. And when John did it, he would call them a brother and he would refer to the family of God. But when Paul described a Christian, he would always, well, the majority of the time, say you're in Christ. So he comes up with these seemingly hard to understand statements until you get it. In Romans 6, he says, when Jesus died, you were in Christ, so you died. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you were in Christ, and you rose from the dead. 
And he says in Ephesians 2, Christ is now, after he appeared to everyone, went to heaven and he's sitting on the throne. And so now you're seated in the heavenlies because you're one and you're in him. Okay? So I've got an analogy here. These, this, is my, uh, this is my old piece of note. And if I wanted to just discard it and throw it away, I could do that. But I have another piece of paper here too. And say I wanted to keep this one. Say this was precious to me. I loved it. Then what I could do is take out my wallet, put it in my wallet, and now wherever I go, the piece of paper will come with me. So if I go to the heavens, it will come with me. And if I die, it will die. When I raise from the dead, it will raise from the dead. That's what happened. If you're a Christian, or if you're going to become a Christian today, that's what happened. Why does this matter? Because God is noticing your life. God has spoken to you when it's quiet at night, in front of the stars. God has shown himself in different ways. When you look at a hummingbird and it stops on a dime, you know God's real. Deep down inside, everybody knows he's alive, he's real. But the problem is, people don't want him. People don't seek him. People don't trust him. People don't obey him. They want to live their own life. And so they'll create a God in their own image to suit their sins so that they can live the way they want to live. That's what I was saying before. And so ultimately, what will happen is, on Judgment Day, Jesus will say to one group of people, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. So just like the piece of paper, I threw it away. The piece of paper didn't want to be with me or you don't want to be with God. And ultimately, through tears, Jesus will say the same thing. Then you won't be with me. And we call that hell. And hell is not for everybody because there's also heaven. There is a group of people who will be found in Christ that day. And so instead of coming to God with their own track record of, I impressed God, I did this much, I volunteered, I obeyed, I was a good parent, that's not it. What they're coming with is the track record of Jesus. So let me explain that in a different way. Jesus told a story. It's a parable. Parables are little stories that pack a big punch. They have a message in them. And Jesus told a parable of a guy who owned a field. And he didn't have enough employees, but the harvest was there. So what he did is he sent the guys who were already working for him to recruit other people to come work the field for the day. So 8 o'clock in the morning, he found a guy. And he said, listen, I'll pay you $100 if you come and work the field for me from 8 till 5. The guy said, okay, I'll do it. 10 o'clock rolls around. There's still not enough people to get this harvest that they want to get it done. So he goes and recruits another person at 10 o'clock and at 12 o'clock and at 2.30. Finally, at 4.30, there's still not enough people. So the owner of the field says, it's 4.30, we're going to close up in half an hour, but go find another one. And so he goes and does it. And at the end of the day, he lines all his employees up and it says, now it's time for me to pay you. And what you're thinking in the parable before Jesus pulls the twist is, okay, the guy works from 8 till 5, that's 9 hours. He worked for 100 bucks. So the guy who worked from noon till 5, he's going to get paid about half of that. The guy who worked at 4.30 till 5, well, he's going to get like 5 bucks, like maybe a can of pop or something, right? Jesus pulls the twist, though. He says, everybody is going to get paid $100. Why is that? He's not talking about money and works and what you do. It's to drive home the point that if you're in Christ, what God, what God, how God looks at Jesus is the way he looks at you. You could be a Christian that your whole life, or you could become a Christian on your deathbed, or you could become a Christian today, and you've, you've got the same paycheck coming to you. I'll put it one more way. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, the life you didn't. See, God revealed himself to Jesus too, and Jesus loved God. Jesus trusted him. He obeyed him. So 
for 30 years of his life, he was a carpenter, and he worked a perfect job. I mean, he would have sweat, he would have sweated making those roofs so bad that his forehead looked like he was crying. He was, he was perfect at what he did. And his whole life has a resume, and your whole life has a resume. And on Judgment Day, people who are in Christ, people who trust in Jesus, aren't coming and saying, here's my resume, God. They're saying, here's Jesus' resume. There was another worker that day on the field, and he worked a perfect day. He lived the perfect life. And so the boss is paying you on his behalf. So, whatever happens to him, happens to us. He's in heaven, and if you trust in Christ, that's where you'll be. And whatever should have happened to us as Christians, we should have been separated from God. What is, the thing, what is one of the last things Jesus says on earth before he dies? Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Up until that point, Jesus had never called God once in the Bible, Lord. What did he always call him? Father. He always had that union. He always had that relationship with him. But on the cross, all our hells are being compressed down on Jesus. He is taking that up. And there is a division. And he's saying, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He's distanced from God. That's what we deserve, but that's what he got. Now, a couple applications before I wrap it up. No one is too far gone. As Christians, we do think it's the most loving thing in the whole world to try and tell and convince other people to become Christians, right? And we pray for them. But sometimes we pray and we pray, and we don't see anything on the outside. And we think, God, are you answering my prayers? There's no moral cleanup. There's no interest in church. They don't want to read the Bible with me. What's going on? But if you look at Saul's life, up until that point, no Christian would have had any idea he was coming into the kingdom that day. And on the external, there was nothing. He was going to come to Damascus to take them back to Jerusalem. He was going to persecute the church. But on the inside, there's something going on. God is working at his heart to the point where he does. He's being primed. He's being ready. So don't give up praying for people. So this, the, the, the dramaticness is kind of lost because we don't understand all the things that happened back in history and what it's like. But for today, this is the type of person who's like an abortion doctor, starting, becoming a Christian, being converted, and then starting up orphanages in Africa. We're talking about like a complete change in life. And then, or a Muslim terrorist becoming uh, part of the church and going to start another church in Halifax with us. We're talking about people who on the surface are hopeless. They're not hopeless. You don't know anyone who's hopeless. So keep praying and keep coming to God for those people and asking them for God to change their hearts so they'll be converted. The second thing is, uh, Saul says something interesting in one of his letters. He says, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. One of the reasons God saves us isn't just to have a relationship. It's also that we have a mandate. We have a job to do. He has things for us to do. It's not the only reason, but it is part of it. And you look at that and you see this in this passage. Uh, Ananias, the guy who at first doesn't want to go to Saul because he, he, he knows who Saul is. I, I love Ananias, by the way, because you re- he redeems his name. God redeems his name. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira are the couple who, who sell their house for one amount of money and they lie to the church. And, uh, you know, at that point, no one's going to name their kid Ananias. But, but God redeems it, right? God doesn't redeem all the names. Judas uh, still hasn't made a comeback yet, but we'll see. Uh, but, but why is Ananias sent? He says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In other words, one of the reasons Saul was converted was to tell other people the good news. And as a Christian, we all have that responsibility and privilege to do that to other people. 
I think there's two reasons why we usually don't. And one is the fear of man, or put another way, just you're insecure. But the gospel overcomes that. The gospel is the only thing that can empower you to do things that are unpopular. It can. So, for instance, uh, say you're a woman and you struggle with your self-image, or say you're a man and you think, I'm not making enough money, and you see all these young guys my age who, they're at the red light, and then as soon as it turns green, they just slam on the gas because they want to look cool. Why is it that people, even when they're adults, still act like children? Why is it like, kids when, they're, kids when they're young, when you play a game with them, I've got nephews, when they play a game, they always have to win. They always change the rules on you so that they win. And adults, as you get a little bit older, you learn that the society doesn't like that and you can't, but you still that same little kid inside going around, do you love me? Do you love me? And the gospel can heal you of that. When you realize that you're in Christ and that the way that the father looks at the son with love and appreciation and acceptance and that you're in the son, that can heal you so that you can tell people even if they, well, you don't know how they're going to respond, but you can still do it. Because you can be secure in Christ. And I think the other reason that people, people say, I'm not going to kind of abandon myself rec- recklessly to telling other non-believers about Christ is because they're afraid they're going to miss something in this life. Uh, but the physical resurrection squashes that. Let me, let me explain it. So, for instance, uh, people will think, I've got a bucket list. I've got so much time on, or even as Christians, they'll think, I've got so much time on the earth, and I want to complete these goals. Right? And they may not be God's goals. It's not the point. I only get this one life to live, and before I die, I want to complete them. I want to do these things. Right? I want to go and travel Europe. I want to do fine dining. I want to do all these things. <sighs> but it, what it really is is a failure in your mind to realize that heaven, heaven is a physical place. It's not just a spiritual thing where you're disembodied and you're floating around cerebral like a little mind, and there's not little fat kids and the Philadelphia cream cheese lady sitting up there in heaven. It's a physical place. Jesus physically came back to life. It wasn't spiritualized. Right? It's, not, it's not like that. He really had, he, remember he eats fish? When he walks on the sand, he would have left footprints. He was physical. And so when you die and you get a new body, you're not going to miss out on anything. If you think you're going to miss out on some exotic experience here, imagine what heaven's going to be like. Okay? Think about it this way. If the trees are going to dance, remember the Bible says when, when all of creation is groaning for Christ to return, for heaven to come to earth, right? So much that the trees are, and, the, and the creation is groaning that when he does come back, the trees are going to clap their hands. I don't know what that means, right? But if they're going to dance, imagine what you're going to do. And I'll, I'll put it one, one other way. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said that in heaven you will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So you won't have sex. You won't have sex. Heaven is so good that sex doesn't even make the cut. Okay? So so the Bible says no mind, no mind has ever thought in its wildest dreams what awaits those who love God. Those who love God and are called according to his purposes are going to go to heaven, and you can't, in your wildest imaginations, miss out. You can't, you can't miss out on anything here because God's going to pay you back a hundred times. So you can recklessly give yourself to the call to convert other people or try to. All right, that's it. So, here today, there are two types of people. Both of us are on a road. 
just like Paul Saul was on a road to Damascus, but they're going in two completely different directions. If you're a believer here, then you're my brother and sister because you're in Christ and I'm in Christ. And I hope today encouraged you and I hope that you understood that God loves you and we've always we heard it our whole life, but remember what Ananias does at the very end. He lays his hands on the on he says, Brother Saul, I've come that you would regain your sight and that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, I'll put it one way, is an encounter with God. That's why we always say we're in his presence, we're experiencing God. So it takes things that you know in your head and it brings them down to your heart. So you feel that. So I pray today that you would go out and get that. That you would say, I don't want to just know in my head that I'm in Christ. I want to feel it in my bones. And that will totally convert you or more deeply convert you. And the second group is a group that's on a completely different path. And right now, if you died in your sins, you would go to hell. Because God is going to say, you didn't want me. I, I wanted you. I wanted a relationship with you, but you didn't want me. You didn't trust in my son. So have it your way, and you will go. And the Bible describes it in many different ways, but one of them is outer darkness. And there is weeping, there's crying, and there's grinding of teeth. I've, I've been a Christian for six years, and I've spent a considerable amount of that time trying to talk to, to non-believers about becoming a Christian. And I've gone over the resurrection, and I've helped people, and I've tried to go through different obstacles they have about Christianity. But at the end... I always go back to this. When I, the summer I became a Christian, I read all these books and, and, and had to have my questions answered. And I was best, uh, really good friends with a guy. And everything I learned, I explained to him. So when I, when I learned about the resurrection, I taught him about the resurrection. When I learned about why we can believe the Bible is true and it's not been, they haven't cooked the books and it's authoritative, I told him all those things. And at the end of the summer, I said, why won't you become a Christian? And he was honest with me. Most people just lie to me and say, ah, Saul was hallucinating and they have some bogus answer. But at the deep heart, uh, my friend, he told me, he said, I want to still have sex outside of marriage and smoke weed. What did he mean by that? He, he meant his heart. He didn't want there to be an empty tomb. He didn't want Jesus to be alive. He had created a God in his own image, and he was going to follow that God no matter where it led him. And so I ask you today to check your motives. Are you throwing away Christianity for the wrong reasons? And if you honestly have questions, there, there are lots of resources to help you. Um, but I, I pray that you would realize that at the deep core of your heart is that you don't want God, but God wants you, and I pray that his love for you would change your mind. So, Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the Bible and how we can trust it. I thank you that there is an empty tomb and that Jesus really did appear to Saul. We would not be here today if it wasn't for that man going and converting other people and the link being passed on to us, God. So I pray as Christians, empower us, God, by your Spirit, to go and to tell the good news to all the world, God, to all this city. And I pray for anybody here today who isn't a Christian, Father, that on the day of judgment, they'd be found in Christ, God. I pray that they would sign up, just like that man who came to work at 4.30, God. It wasn't that he worked only for half an hour. It was that there was another employee who worked his whole shift. And I pray that they'd be found in Christ, God, that they trust in you. I pray this in your good name, Jesus. Amen.